Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week in the kick, we are looking to this weekend's New York City Marathon, from the top contenders to what makes it such a unique event. Then, an interview with actor Theo Rossi, the former Sons of Anarchy star, is running in NYC this weekend, his first 26.2. But first, running while female. Last week on our website, we ran a special report about the harassment many women face while running. The report included a survey we conducted of both male and female runners. And that survey found that 43% of women at least sometimes experience harassment on the run. That's compared to only 4% of men who say they sometimes are harassed on the run. I'll admit, as I read through the survey results, even I didn't understand the extent to which women are verbally harassed, followed, or even worse, during their workouts. The story, which will also appear in our December issue, generated a huge response, both in the media and among our readers. Hundreds of comments, thousands of shares and likes on Facebook. So we wanted to continue this discussion in this special episode of the Runner's World Show with a roundtable of runners and with audio from runners from around the country describing their own experiences. The first time a man yelled something at me while I was running, I was 18. It was my first semester at college away from home. And as I was running down the street, he yelled, keep running your fat right in my face. Since then, um, unfortunately, I've come to know that this is probably one of the least disgusting things that a man could yell at me. Thanks for joining and stay with us. If you are a runner and you're a man, you probably have been running in a bubble all this time without really realizing it. That's because if you are a runner and you're a woman, you've likely endured stares, whistles, unwelcome comments, and unwanted car honks when you've been out on the roads. There's also a good chance you're worried about being physically assaulted or receiving unwanted physical contact during a run. And these experiences and concerns may have fundamentally changed how you run. We know all this because of a survey we conducted over the summer. More than 4,500 runners, nearly half of whom were men, responded to the survey, and their responses helped shape a story we ran online last week called Running While Female. In that piece, contributing editor Michelle Hamilton explored just how pervasive and potentially life-altering on-the-run harassment is. The story also appears in our December issue. We decided to run the story online ahead of the issue's release date for a couple of reasons. First, harassment isn't just a problem for runners. Given the current national dialogue surrounding sexist remarks and alleged assaults, it's clear that women everywhere are subject to unwanted attention. And secondly, well, this just pisses me off. I'll admit, I had no idea how pervasive, insidious, and disruptive this kind of harassment was. I run to get away from stress, to unwind and hopefully become blissfully mindless, at least for a while. But it's clear to me now that for many, many women, running can do the opposite. It can cause them more stress. You just can't bask in the luxury of zoning out when you have to constantly assess your surroundings. I wanted to understand more about this issue, what women are hearing and experiencing, and what guys like me can do about it. So I'm here with a special roundtable of runners, a mix of everyday runners, experts, and Runner's World colleagues who have dealt with this issue in their own lives. 
I plan to do a lot of listening to what they have to say, but I'm sure I'll have a few questions along the way as well. So I will hand the mic over now to Tish Hamilton. Hi, David. Uh, thanks for having us here today. Um, so I'm Tish Hamilton, executive editor of Runner's World, and I'm one of the editors of our story, Running While Female. I'll be moderating this discussion today, and to get us started, I would like to um, have you all introduce yourselves. And actually, I'm going to start with my colleague, Megan Keita, who worked on the story and also uh, put together the survey. Thanks, Tish. I'm Megan Keita. I am the training editor at Runner's Worlds. I live in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and I've been running for 14 years. And I have with me also Polly. Thanks, Tish. Uh, my name is Polly Jones. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I've been running for 20 years. I'm also thrilled to have with us today on the phone Holly Curl, uh, a runner and also the founder of a nonprofit called Stop Street Harassment, which I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about, please, Holly. Sure. Thank you. Yes, I'm calling in from Reston, Virginia, and I've been a runner for 25 years. I ran my first 5K when I was eight years old. And actually, um, bad experiences with street harassment as a runner inspired me to write a master's thesis on street harassment. And that led later to me founding a nonprofit um, that works to document the issue and raise awareness and engage in community mobilization. Cool. Thank you. So I'm, I'm sure you're going to tell us more about it as we go along. Um, I want to thank you all for being here today. And I want to start with this first um, stat which is that 43% of women that we surveyed said that they experience some form of harassment mid-run, at least sometimes. And that number goes up for women who are under the age of 30, it goes up to 58%. And that's compared with just 4% of men who say they occasionally get harassed on the run. So, okay, so when we say harassment, what does that sound like? We put a call out to runners and many responded Let's hear what it sounds like to them. Hi, my name is Mary Harvey, and I live in Brooklyn, New York. A little bit ago, I was out running on a summer day, and I just left a group of friends. I'm running along, and a guy yells at me, nice tits. Yeah, I had a shirt on. It's a funny thing because every day when I go out for a run, I expect to be sexually harassed. Yesterday, I was walking to a spin class, and I had two separate instances of sexual harassment, and that's in a 20-minute walk. Leanne, Cincinnati, Ohio. Recently on a training group run, we had a male yell, I smell blank repeatedly at the top of his lungs from the other side of the street as we ran by. First thought that went through my head was to keep looking forward and not acknowledge him, not knowing what he would do or say if we were to look at him. Hi, my name is Elitza Nicolau, and I'm from Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, two years ago, I was on a 10-mile training run when I ran across a gentleman walking his dog. And I always wave at dogs when I'm out running. Um, so I waved at the dog, and the man walking the dog responded by saying, well, my dog likes to chase pretty girls, too. Um, I shot him a very dirty look, uh, but I haven't really felt safe running in that area since. And actually... Just last week, a lady was attacked in the same area. Um, I don't run by myself anymore, and I always have my phone with me. Hi, my name is Suzanne Olson. I live in Renton, Washington, which is in the Seattle area. And I was running with my 13-year-old daughter. And um, on the other side of the road was a man on a bike who um, whistled at us, kind of like a wolf whistle. 
and um, it totally freaked her out. She got scared, nervous, uh, very uncomfortable, and now she doesn't want to run alone. My name is Anna. I live in Michigan. The first time a man yelled something at me while I was running, I was 18. It was my first semester at college away from home. And as I was running down the street, he yelled, keep running your fat right in my face. Since then, um, unfortunately, I've come to know that this is probably one of the least disgusting things that a man could yell at me. I haven't really changed my running behavior. I've continued to run for the last 11 years, but I just am far more aware of whoever might be around. Um, it's not always as relaxing as I would hope it would be. So that's pretty awful. And I think it's shocking, um, not shocking to women who've had to deal with this, sadly, but shocking to hear that that uh, anybody thinks it's okay to say any of that stuff. <laughs> um we know anecdotally and from these clips that we just heard uh, that all these kind of things, these comments, honks, whistles um, tend to happen more in urban areas, although all those clips were certainly a range of, of environments. Um, Polly, I know you run in New York. Um, yes. Can you tell us about your experiences? Um, I would say that all of those stories ring true. I'm finding it very interesting to, you know, I, I assumed that it happened a lot more to um, – me because I live in New York. Um, but those stories ring very true. I'm not surprised at all. Um, but my experience is that generally I can expect to be harassed at least once during a run. Um, I would say probably I could get harassed up to nine, 10 times and I wouldn't be surprised. It's something I think about before I go on a run every day. Um, I would say it's, it varies from, um, just a stare, uh, a lot of stares up and down, um, to uh, a sexual comment as I run by, to people actually blocking my path down the street. I run um, in the mornings. I run at night. It doesn't make a difference what time of day it is. I've been harassed at 6.30 in the morning on a summer morning. Um, so, yeah, I would say that I'm not surprised to hear this. Polly, um, I'm curious to know when you say, you know, you can experience up to nine comments and harassments on on the run. Um, do, do you what is your response? Um, so I've always felt that I had the right to respond. However, I felt comfortable to respond in that moment. And that should be OK. So it depends on my mood. Um, but generally, I'd say I probably um, speak up more than um, most people would. Um, I usually stop and I turn around and I ask them to repeat what they said. Um, or I, uh, I ask them why. Um, and I would say that almost every time they're shocked that I'm um, saying anything. I think that they take for granted that they can say something and not be called out on it. I've never felt like um, doing this has that I've put myself in more danger or that I feel fear particularly doing this. Um, but I'm also have the advantage that I'm running in an urban area. There's people around, there's traffic. Um, I don't know that I would do it if I were in a rural area by myself. I think that I would be much more frightened. Um, but I, I do find that 
my run is already interrupted. My flow, my meditative state, whatever, wherever I've been um, is already interrupted. So I generally feel like I feel a little bit better if I say something than if I'm silent. And the population density both puts you um, with uh, a lot of people, a lot more people who might say something and, and a lot more people to make you feel comfortable to say something back, it's sort of a double-edged sword. Right. Another shockingly large stat our survey found is that 30% of women have actually been followed during their run. Here's one woman's story about that. My name is Liz and I live in Tampa, Florida. I used to run solo, but now my husband follows me on his bike. This all came about because of one scary incident at about 5.30 in the afternoon on a busy thoroughfare near my home. I was about three miles into my run, and I heard a honk. I looked up and didn't recognize the car, so I didn't wave. Unbeknownst to me, that car had spun around and came back in my direction. I didn't find it out until the gentleman pulled across my path on the sidewalk, blocking me. He rolled down his window and began to ask me to get in the car and calling me baby and telling me I knew I wanted to get in. No matter how hard I tried to tell the gentleman I wasn't interested, he just wasn't having it. I finally told him to take a hike. I beat tracks around the back of his car and I found the quickest side road back to my house. Scared and out of breath, I came in the door and I told my husband what happened. So when you hear that clip, you hear in her voice, um, the fear and, and terror, and it sounds like she's about to cry, and we don't know how long ago that happened to her, but clearly, you know, that, that um, you know, impacts her and resonates with her to this day, which is, which is awful, um, and, and uh, I want to ask you, Megan, I know that you've been followed, um, so can you tell us uh, your story? Sure. My, my story, stories, actually, I've been followed twice. Um, both times I was running alone, um, both times in fairly fancy neighborhoods um, where, you know, I, I felt pretty safe. Um, there were a decent number of cars around. Um, and both times it was a situation where the same car just kept popping up over and over again in my path in different parts of my route. Um, and it creeped me out enough that I got out of there both times. It's impossible to know what someone intends in such a situation, but that's what makes it scary. Um, you are not in control of this situation. Only this person who is following you or harassing you knows what he intends to do. So that's what makes it so alarming. Um, and even though this has happened to me twice, uh, it was still shocking to me that 30% of women said it had happened to them. That's one in three. That's a huge number. And it's it's really frightening. Megan, did you change your running behavior because of it? You know, I did. Um, after the first instance, I actually got some pepper spray to run with. That said, I don't run with it every time I go out. And probably if I ever need it, I won't have it with me. Um, but <laughs> um, I, I, I did that after the first time and I stopped running in that area for a little bit. Um, and after the second instance, again, stopped running there for a little bit. But honestly... These were both places I had run, you know, probably a hundred plus times previously and nothing had ever happened then. So ultimately I was like, well, it was probably just a fluke. It's probably not going to happen there again. If it does happen, it will be somewhere else. So what can you really do about it? 
Holly, um, I'm curious to hear about uh, your experiences, especially because, as you mentioned, it, it jump-started um, some studies you've done. Yeah, um, I can relate, sadly, to um, to Megan and to the caller story. Um, I was followed, I've been followed a couple of times, but twice while running. The first time was when I was 14 and training for my first marathon, and it was a man in a car, and I was able to... Um, lose him down a side street. But then the, the really scary time was uh, right after I finished college and I was living at home for a few months and I was running at a park after work where I'd run, you know, so many times. It was where our high school cross country course was. I was very familiar with it. And a man started um, following me. And he, as I increased my speed, he increased his speed until he was chasing me through this park. And there was no one else around. It was dusk. And I'm a person who freezes up normally when I'm like startled or upset, but I'm grateful that I was able to keep going. I was already in the in motion and I was able to outrun him, um, but I've never been more scared. And I think that for so many women who have been followed, what is scary is just not knowing what's going to happen next because you just don't know. Um, and we've, you know, kind of grown up with stories. Um, I, I know when I started going to cross country camps in the summer as a teenager. Um, the first time I went, it was boys and girls and we did everything together until there was this one safety session where the girls had to go apart from the boys, the boys got to like go play or do whatever. And we got told how, um, how many dangers were out there and, you know, to try not to run alone, don't run after dark, don't become predictable. And so that was, when I was 12 years old or maybe 13. And so that's been in my mind for, for, for um, basically my whole running career. And I know that so many other women, especially runners, um, probably had similar experiences. Um, yeah, so, so that was one of probably the, the pinnacle um, moments. But what really did lead me to start addressing this issue was just the sheer volume of harassment, similar to what Polly was talking about, where sometimes I could go for a run near my college campus in Northern California and face up to 10 instances in a single hour run. And I just kept thinking like my male colleagues don't have to deal with this. My male peers don't have to deal with this. Why do I have to deal with this? And um, so it led me to start researching this topic, which at that time was very under-researched. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've kind of worked to, to better document it and to collect stories and data so that we can show that this is a problem. And so I'm so grateful to Runner's World for collecting this data on runners and street harassment because no one else has done that so far. Okay, I think we have a, another clip um, of that shows um, uh, this more than harassment. This is going beyond just words. My name is Colleen and I live in Washington, D.C. Um, last winter, it was getting pretty cold and icy out, so I took my running into uh, the new gym in my office basement. I was running there a couple days a week until um, one day I rode the elevator into work with um, a co-worker and the building engineer. Um, he made a few comments along the lines of, I've been watching you work out and you're working really hard and it's like paying off for you and you're like really fit. When I was in the gym running or doing strength training, I was usually alone and I had never seen the building engineer. That's when I realized he'd been watching me via the security feeds. 
I was really surprised and I didn't know what to say. Obviously, I was pretty uncomfortable and I could see that my coworker who was in the elevator with me was also uncertain as to how to react. So not wanting to start something, I played along and I got out of the elevator. My coworker and I didn't discuss it. Since then, I've only worked out in the gym a couple of times, usually with other people, and I haven't been able to go near the treadmill. I'm always hyper-conscious of the clothes I'm wearing, of what angle I'm at, to the security cameras. There's nowhere in the gym that's hidden from them, so there's nowhere I can work out where I'm sure he won't be watching. Actually, my discomfort has only grown since that incident, and though I constantly make plans with myself to work out there, I haven't been able to do it in about four months. So with winter approaching, I'll soon have to take my running inside, and I still don't know what I'm going to do. My name is Debbie Woodruff. I live in La Quinta, California. A little over 20 years ago, I was attacked when I was running uh, very early in the morning in Palm Springs. Um, I was able to fight the guy off, ran as fast as I could, and got away. Um, Basically changed my life. It was months before I could even, well, I was scared just to walk outside. Then I, to run outside, I, I ran in circles around my parking lot for a while. Then I moved to the high school track. Now I still avoid the dark unless I'm with somebody. I don't like to run it very early in the morning or late at night. Um, it just really changed me. And I, I fear sometimes for other women, too. It's, uh, it's, it's scary that you don't have the control over what happens to you. So these stories are really hard to listen to. And, um, Holly, you know, yours of, of being chased is really terrifying and horrifying, um, and and it's hard to dial back from something you know that uh, threatening um, and scary to um, you know everyday street harassment. Uh, but you know that said, um, in fact, uh, we are as women we're far in far more danger when we get in a car and drive to work every day than we are when we're out running of being killed and being abducted and and that's something i think we have to remember you know that uh these you know and i don't mean to minimize what happened to to these women or any woman ever uh but it is it is an outlier uh situation and the harassment however is much more pervasive and every day and you know all women runners deal with it at some point in their lives. Uh, and it's a fine line that, that we have to, to walk. Um, so uh, not surprisingly, uh, women do a lot of things to avoid getting harassed. Um, our survey found um, that women have changed the way they run in all sorts of ways. And, and they're not surprising, but, um, uh, you know, they, they bear repeating, which is running with a phone Um, the ways to feel safe, you know, running with other people, running only when it's daylight, um, telling someone where they're going to run and what time to expect them back, taking road ID with them, uh, changing up their routes. Um, And some women, as we will hear next, um, change what they carry. My name is Christy. I'm 58 years old and I live in New York. Um, I carry bear spray with me when I go hiking. It's like a giant can of pepper spray. 
Uh, because even at my age, I get harassed on the trail. And uh, as a walker, not a runner, I get harassed on the street to this day. My name is Marcy Summers. I live in Mattoon, Illinois, and I began seriously considering getting my permit to conceal carry a handgun while running while I was training for my first marathon. At that time, I was logging a lot of my miles outside on the country roads around my house, and some of the routes that I would take, I would only ever see a handful of cars drive by as I was running. And I really enjoyed the peaceful country roads, but it also made me nervous about how easy it might be for somebody to hurt me, and there really wouldn't be anyone else around to protect me. My husband's always been very, very supportive of my running, and he's actually the one who helped me get signed up for the firearm safety class that I needed, and he helped me purchase a small and manageable handgun that I could safely run with. With every aspect of my running, I'm a huge planner. I think all runners are. You know, we're always preparing for water stops and snacks and what the weather would be like. Um, so for me, carrying a handgun is just another part of my planning for anything that could happen. Since making the decision to conceal carry a handgun while I'm running, I've noticed myself not feeling as anxious or nervous, especially while I'm running alone in the country. I know having to use it would definitely be a worst case scenario situation, but the security and confidence that it gives me knowing it's there has really helped me to be able to focus on my training and really enjoy my running. So uh, we're hearing from a variety of different women in different locations and different strategies for how to deal with it. And um Megan uh, has, I know that you have um, talked about safety and, and how women decide what makes them safe. Sure. Uh, you know, one of the, the points we tried to hit in our survey was trying to find out what women do um, without, you know, saying what women should or shouldn't do. Um, the, the bottom line is that every woman has to do uh, what makes her feel safe and comfortable on the run. And you know, for a very small percentage of women, 1%, according to our survey, that means carrying a gun. Uh, more women, 21%, according to our survey, choose pepper spray. Um, and far more women choose just to run with a phone, uh, just as a way to contact someone if something were to happen. Um, so, you know, the bottom line, we don't want to give any kind of tips or advice. You know, it's up to you to decide what makes you feel comfortable. Because it's a complicated calculus that every woman thinks about when she goes out on a run, you know, is uh, um, where are you going to run? Uh, what time of day is it? How many people are out there? And that changes, you know, all the time. And, and everybody's safety level is a different thing and where you're running is different. So, you know, we, we can't tell somebody this is the safe way to run because it's different for everybody and in every different kind of location. That said, um, on this kind of topic, um, there's a common perception um, that, that what you wear, what you wear might um, incite comments. And very specifically, running um, in just a sports bra uh, could um, bring you nothing but grief, frankly. Um, and that kind of makes sense, but, but is that real? Polly, you're shaking your head no. <laughs> I'm shaking my head no, because I, I'm her, I, I run outside all year long. So I, you know, in the dead of winter in New York, I'm, I've got layers and layers on. You can hardly even see my face, it's just my eyes. And I don't see any drop in harassment at all. Um, so I think that it wouldn't go up by wearing a sports bra, but I think maybe um, some women be believe that to be true, so they're more comfortable 
not wearing just a sports bra, but it's really frustrating because in the summer it is so hot in New York and, you know, all the male members of my club are stripping off their, their t-shirts and their uh, singlets. And you can see that the women would love to do the same, but they're just not comfortable. Megan, will you run in just a sports bra? If I'm with a bunch of other women, maybe. Um, or if I am on the safety of the trail behind our office with a bunch of other people, maybe. But yes, uh, just like Polly said, I am one of those women who does not feel comfortable running in just a sports bra, not because I'm self-conscious of my body, but because I do have this belief that I will be more likely to attract unwanted attention if I do run in just a sports bra. I have never tested that theory to see if it's true. Um, maybe next summer when it gets really hot, I will, you know, woman up and do that. But um, I, I, it is a common, common belief. Holly, can you speak to this issue? Yes. Uh, so focusing on clothing is such a common response um, for both women and men where I think because you can feel so powerless in um, facing street harassment because you never know when it's going to happen or how far it might escalate. Um, you know, I think as women, we try to find ways to take some, feel like we have some control. And so one way may be to regulate our clothing and think, well, this is, you know, this is something I can do. Um, and for men, there's just this common notion where uh, for, for not all men, of course, but for, for many men, they believe that, how women dress indicates their availability or interest and their attention. There was actually just a study out at the University of um, Iowa where uh, men were shown pictures of women in different outfits and also different facial expressions and body language. And they rated women based on who they thought was sexually available. <laughs> and uh, they, you know, they, they heavily skewed toward women who were wearing fewer clothes. Um, but that said, that's sort of this perception that's out there. But if you look at the limited data that exists on clothing and street harassment, it shows a different story. Um, so there's not anything in the U.S., but if we look at countries like Egypt and Yemen, where women are typically covered and or very modestly dressed in public spaces, there's a lot of victim blaming of women who are not. And Men and women both will say, you know, if you're dressed in Western clothing or if you're not wearing a hijab, like you're asking for it. But studies conducted in both countries showed that it didn't matter what women wore. Women in, um, in burqas in Yemen were still harassed. And actually, most women had been groped by men on the streets. And so ultimately, you know, the blame comes down to our societal norms that make it seem like it's okay for men to approach women in disrespectful, creepy, and threatening ways, um, and that, you know, really we are harassed in all sorts of clothes, um, all sorts of, uh, you know, locations, and with people, without people. Um, I've actually heard from men who have long hair, and if they have it up in a ponytail, they'll, they'll get catcalls until the men realize that they're a man. They just see the ponytail bouncing and think that it's a woman. I get frustrated when people do focus so much on clothes, but at the same time, I understand why for women, especially because it can feel like we're taking back control by trying to um, do what we think will, will limit harassment. It's frustrating to focus on clothes because it feels like a form of blaming the victim. Yeah, absolutely. 
and so intellectually, we you know we know why the issue of harassment is a big deal because you know it sucks and it's unfair and and it's potentially not safe. But um, but the, it's more than that. Yes. So no country has achieved gender equality between women and men in any arena, whether that's politics, education, the media, sports. And street harassment is just one more manifestation of that. It's one more place where women don't have equal access um, the way that men have. We cannot safely you know, tr- travel to work, to school, exercise, you know, go out for entertainment without having to fear for our safety or, or think about it. Even if even women I've talked to who don't recall ever being street harassed still have the same safety concerns that it could happen. And so we, you know, sort of have this different um, way we have to think about navigating through public spaces and through the world. And, um, and I think coming back to the issue of equality, street harassment can be a way for men to remind us that we don't have equality to them. They know that most women aren't going to respond aggressively or assertively. They know that they'll likely get away with it. Um, And they know that even if women do respond assertively or aggressively, often other people will blame the women and say, well, you shouldn't have been out there. You shouldn't have been wearing X, Y, Z instead of blaming men. Um, So it really is twofold in that because there's inequality, we face more harassment in public spaces and the harassment is a reminder that we face inequality. So, okay, so here we are, um, uh, you know, a few women sitting around talking about this, and it happens to us. Uh, and, and you know, it, it's hard not to feel a little bit hopeless about this, because what can we do? And, um, you know, the people who are the, the men, because it's mostly men, uh, who are doing this are not listening to this podcast. Um, what can we do? Is there anything we can do? What would you say to that, Holly? I think the number one thing to do is to talk about it and to share stories, which is what we all are doing, because for too long, our stories haven't been told or we only tell them in hushed voices to each other behind closed doors. And I think the biggest thing to do is to show this is happening to us. It's happening to many of us and it's changing the way we live. And then that in turn can lead people like David who have positions of power and who didn't know that this was happening to be able to to say something and do something. And I do see a ripple effect where the more women who speak out, the more men in our lives who care about us start taking a stand and they can be bigger influences on other men than we maybe can be. And so I see um, a lot of power in sharing our stories and it can help us too. Uh, There was actually research done about two years ago that showed that even doing something as simple as tweeting about sexism, such as street harassment, can help the person feel a little bit better and get through it more easily. When you were 12, you told us about um, being um, pulled aside to talk about harassment. And I'm curious um, to know now that, you know, you've grown up, uh, do you think that was a good thing to have been pulled away and, and given this message as a 12-year-old and, and, and you know, having the girls separated from the boys? And, and how would you handle that with a group of 12-year-olds now? Yes, that, that's always bothered me. I think that the boys and the girls should have still been together because, um, I mean, boys and men do face dangers and can face harassment. So, you know, for that reason alone, they should have, you know, been able to get uh, information on that. But I think that separating us out 
sent this message that, oh, you're a girl, you're vulnerable, you're sort of the problem. Like, here's what you're supposed to do to try to deal with what's just inevitably going to happen. And I think if it had been a conversation among all of us, we could have maybe talked more about like, you know, in our society, like these things happen. It doesn't have to be this way together. We can all work on these issues by being aware and, you know, Hey guys, like don't do this to, to, to girls or women and tell your, call out your buddies. Like, I think it could have been um, an opportunity to have a, a conversation around this and we had all already bonded. So I think we could have had a, you know, really meaningful discussion about, um, you know, what things are like to be realistic, but also to talk about, what we could do to create a world where this we don't have to have this conversation in the future. I think also um, pulling the girls out uh, kind of reinforces a sense of shame about it. Uh, like this is something that, that we have to hide from, from the boys that, that, you know, that we're talking about this. Right. Yeah, exactly. It did feel shameful and um, like you're weak and, you know, and yeah, the boys, you don't want the boys to know that this happens to you. Um, and I think it, it does create these silos where a lot of guys just don't know this even happens because they haven't ever been exposed to it. And it did become this thing where like, I didn't talk about the harassment I was experiencing uh, very much at all. Only the really scary things that I'd maybe, you know, mentioned to my parents or my boyfriend. And that was it. Like you just didn't talk about it. And I think that you hit it on the hit it on the head. It was, um, sort of taught to me that it was shameful. Well, I, I have to say I'm I'm shocked and angered by everything that I've heard here. <laughs> uh, the, the voicemails that were called in, the fact that you guys have faced this when you're out running, I'm sorry that all this has happened, continues to happen. Um, and I was shocked to learn of it in the first place. I mean, Megan, we were in a meeting and it was after the the murders over the summer. There were three female runners who were murdered in the span of nine days. It was a big national story. And we got together and had an edit meeting to to talk about that and, and other stories as well. And we're trying to figure out what, if anything, we should do about these murders and and how to stay safe on the run. And we talked about the fact that it is statistically very, very rare, thank God, for things like that to happen to runners. And it was then that someone said, and Megan, maybe it was you, I, I don't remember exactly, um, that there's a gray area between safety and harassment. And I said, what do you, what do you mean harassment? What kind of harassment? And, you know, I, I remember you looked at me like, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? Um, and you basically educated me because I have to say, I've been running for 30 years. I have run with more women than I can begin to count friends, training partners, my sister, my wife, my daughter, colleagues, you know, you guys. And I've been racking my brain since we did this story, trying to remember was I there when something like this happened and I just didn't notice it? I mean, I really was utterly in the dark that this was going on. Um, so in addition to being shocked and angry, I'm also embarrassed because you were so surprised, Megan, that I was so surprised. Um, and I guess I, I want to ask you, Polly, mm -hmm. whether the the male 
members of your running group, your friends, your training partners, are they, are they aware that this is happening to you and to other women that they know? Well, you think? I actually had a really interesting experience because in the this past spring, I had a particularly um, maddening experience with harassment. And I guess I just kind of, it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And I, this is something I, I don't talk about. And my, um, the women in my club aren't talking about, none of us were having these conversations. And I always thought that it was because it was, I mean, I, I believed, I must have believed on some level that it was something that as women, we just need to learn how to accept. And it was somehow my fault that I wasn't able to ignore it. Um, but I talked to my brother, who's also a runner in New York City, um, about it because I was so upset about this particular event. And he was shocked. He he runs in a co-ed team. He's been running with countless women his whole adult life. And he was surprised when I was talking about the frequency, um, how often it's happening, how awful the things are that these men are saying. And he's a very well-meaning well-educated man who um, has sisters and a wife. And um, he said, you need to talk to the women in your club about this. And I thought, I've never had conversations with them about it ever. Mm. And so when I started talking to them about it and they were sharing all these experiences, I started feeling better because we were having these conversations and then we were having them with the men in our club and they had very similar reactions to as my brother did um where they just they don't see it and i think what um i've thought is is sort of a first step uh, is well of course talking about it but also for the men in our running community to just accept that it is a reality and it's happening and not to be so surprised or um because when I show up to a group run having just been harassed, I want to be able to say this happened and not have my, you know, guy friend be say, really? Like, and it's not because he doesn't believe me, but it's because these men would never dream of harassing it. They can't wrap their brain around it. So it's so, and we haven't been talking about it enough. So even this, um, this uh, piece by Runner's World is a huge this, when I read it, I started crying because there hasn't been this kind of um, coverage um, and these co conversations. And um, it's such a relief to even just be talking about it. I'm, I'm kind of struggling as a, as a male runner who was so surprised and am, and am so unnerved and angry about this. Still trying to grapple with, what, so what do I do with this in, information? Um, and Polly, you just touched on some of it. And I think just creating empathy, which is one of the reasons we decided to do this story, even though there is no obvious solution, right? Gender-based harassment is a really pernicious fact in our culture. This is not just a running problem. This is a cultural problem that has many, many causes. And there's no simple way to spare women this harassment while they're out running. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't report on it. And talking about it, and I hope creating a sense of empathy, perhaps especially among men, so that they are aware. And I guess my question, and, and Megan, I'll ask you, because again, you were the the person who kind of um, flipped the switch for me, if you will. Um, what, if anything, do you want me and other male runners that you know, that you work with or friends with, what do you want us, what else do you want us to know? And what, if anything, do you want us to do? 
you know, I think I think we're doing what I hoped would happen right now, which is we're talking about this in a mixed group. You know, I had definitely spoken about this with other women who run uh, just because, you know, sometimes it was happening to all of us at the same time on a group run. Um, you know, I've been harassed with other women almost as often as I've been harassed alone. Uh, so that was a conversation that already was happening. And, you know, our first conversation about this piece in that meeting with men and women both there, um, I think that was the start of the process. Now that this piece is out in the world and men and women across the country have read it, that's the next step. And I just hope that men and women continue this conversation even after this piece has kind of uh, gotten all the attention it will and run its course. David, when you were talking about um, having been a runner for 30 years and run with all kinds of women, your sister, your wife, uh, your colleagues, your daughter, and you've never um, never seen any instance of this happen, and, and I'm going to say very respectfully, that is because you're a man. Um, so uh, it's not going to happen to to the women when when they're running with you. Yeah. Um, and to Polly's point, um, one of the things that we have to do, uh, all of us, is is to stop framing this in a male narrative um, and stop framing it from the point of view of oh my god, this is shocking. Uh, women get harassed. Um, because to Polly's point, you know, then she's got to spend all this time bringing people up to speed. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. We get all we get harassed. We've got to say the stats, and and you guys have got to get over your surprise. And um, to to in order for the um, empathy to come more quickly. And Holly, have you got something to say on this front? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that what can happen, even if you're not seeing street harassment while you're running. Maybe you've seen it at other times, and maybe you haven't always recognized it as street harassment. Um, I hear from men that they're they're like, well, maybe she likes it. I'm not quite sure. So I hear that a lot once men are becoming more aware of this, and it turns out maybe they actually are seeing harassment. They just have never thought of it in those terms until they start hearing women's stories. And, um, for example, my dad I was shocked too, like so many men to hear I was being harassed when I finally started talking to him about it. And now he is the biggest advocate I know. And he has talked to male colleagues. He's talked to taxi drivers. He's in New York City. He's talked to um, just men at events about the issue and called men out when he's seen them making inappropriate comments about women. Even if the women don't hear them, he's calling the men out and saying like, hey, don't, you know, that's not cool. Don't say that. So I think that the more men we um, have who are aware of the issue and who are speaking out in a running and non-running context, the fewer harassers will end up having because the research shows a lot of men are doing it to impress other men. So if other men aren't impressed, you know, a lot of that harassment is going to dissipate. So, um, so, you know, sharing our stories with men so men are aware, letting, you know, having men get up to speed on the issue and then having men talk to other men is so important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Holly. A lot of times uh, when men are doing it, they're doing it together and they're kind of showing off to each other. Yeah. And it's not even about the, the person that they're speaking about or to. They're like, they're, you know, they're doing a power play with themselves. But there's something else that I, I want to say um, about uh, reactions to this kind of thing. Um, when we started talking about this this summer and, and the 
women were murdered and that's terrible and tragic and our reactions were all the same, like, you know, shocked and horrified and, and our hearts hurt for their families. But at the same time, when our male runner friends say to us as women, be safe, um, don't run alone, uh, never run in the dark, um, that is not helpful either. And, and it, it's almost um, insulting, you know, because especially for, you know, those of us who've been running for a while, we kind of know those rules already. Um, and, and I know it comes from a good place. Like I know they want, they want us safe. You know, everybody wants their people safe. Right. Um, but, but it, there's sort of this implicit, like, you know, it's almost a little bit back to blaming the victim. You know, uh, I, I, mm -hmm. those women probably were being safe, air quotes, being safe. So, so I would say, you know, don't, don't say that to your women runner friends. I strongly agree with that point. Thank you yeah. for making it. Uh, that is one of the the things that made me want to do this story so much, just because that particular line of conversation after those murders made me so angry because these are tips that they were framing for women specifically, not for all runners. You know, all runners probably should tell people where they're going and when they're going to be back. That's just a good safety practice. But to frame it for women specifically, you're saying you need to behave differently from men because you are more at risk than men. And even if that is true, we already know we've been getting this message our whole lives from, you know, the age of 12 at cross country camp in Holly's case. Um, I was in a self-defense class for women as an adult where the instructor told us all never to go anywhere alone. That was the first tip we got. And that made me so angry because that is not something you would say to a man. And aren't we supposed to live our lives as equals? Aren't we supposed to be able to do all of the same things men can do? We are, and that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, I need to make my own decisions about how to stay safe. Okay, so having this conversation is the first step. Um, for for many of us collectively, if you'd like to see more details from the survey and read the story, you can find it at runnersworld.com/audio. We also have a hashtag harassed midrun uh, where you can contribute your stories. And I want to thank you all so much for your time today. Polly Jones, a runner from Brooklyn, Megan Keita, my coworker at Runners World. Holly Curl in Reston, Virginia, who started Stop Street Harassment, uh, which we're really, really thrilled that you're doing. And thank you, David Willie, for joining us and for being here. And I'm Tish Hamilton. Thank you for letting me take over today. Thanks, Tish. Thank you, Tish. Thanks, Tish. Thanks again to the many runners who sent us voice memos describing their experiences of on-the-run harassment. You can listen to all those stories and read the story Running While Female at runnersworld.com slash audio. Coming up, reporter Kit Fox's interview with actor and first-time marathoner Thea Rossi. You might know Thea Rossi from the hit FX show Sons of Anarchy. He played Juice Ortiz, a member of the Outlaw Motorcycle Club. It was after season two of that show, back in 2009, that Theo first started running. He was 211 pounds, a smoker and a drinker, and he needed to lose weight for a film. So he started running, 
quit smoking and drinking, and lost 43 pounds in 12 weeks. He's been an avid runner ever since. Lately, the Staten Island native has been super busy. He plays Shades Alvarez in the new Netflix series, Luke Cage. His movie, Lowriders, will be out in 2017. And he's been training for his first marathon. He'll be running New York this weekend. Reporter Kit Fox talked with the actor recently about the world's largest marathon, how running helps his acting, and the race series he started to raise money for charity. You're as local as local gets Mm -hmm. for the New York City Marathon. Mm -hmm. Born and raised in Staten Island. Like, why did you, and maybe this is an obvious question, but why did you pick New York City to be your first marathon? And, you know, what is this going to be mean to you, you know, starting basically in your neighborhood? You know, for me, I've grown up here my whole life and I've seen actually, you know, the intensity of what it's like, you know, on Staten Island and everybody, you know, kind of packing in. I've said to everybody and it's kind of like the biggest party day of the year for New York City, bigger than New Year's Eve, bigger than anything. It's like just this incredible feeling that overtakes New York City. Everybody's in an incredible mood. Everybody's super happy. Um, Any races that I've done, you know, most recently Hood to Coast and, you know, a lot of these races, uh, I think the one thing that people aren't aware of when they've never run a race is the atmosphere. The atmosphere is so incredibly contagious that I think if somebody just went and ran a 5K or even walked a 5K, they'd get hooked on them. They just want to do them all the time because it's like the before, the after, the camaraderie, the whole thing. So for me, I'm such a huge supporter of New York City. I'm such a big believer in it. You know, I'm I'm institutionalized by this place at this point. I kind of can't leave. Um, as much as I complain about it, I kind of can't leave. Um, <laughs> yeah. And for me, it was just the perfect fit. So the house that you grew up in, how, mm-hmm. how close was that to the starting line? Really close. Um, I can be there. I could, if I, if I wanted to have a, pretty nice warm-up run I could probably jog there um so I get to I think we the clocks kind of we have the clock store advantage that day and I live in Staten Island so I'll be getting more sleep than most of the people who start the marathon (laughs) that's great so what is your goal going into New York City you know if you asked me a couple of weeks ago I would have said finish um but I'm way too competitive to keep saying that so I have to stop (laughs) saying that um I don't know I think right now I'm probably if I have to somehow like, you know, jump on someone's back who's running a seven minute or I'm going to try to run, you know, under three thirty, I would think I would think that I should be able to do that. I mean, I did the 20 yesterday in in uh, eight minutes and twenty nine and I and I was just training, you know, uh, a per mile. Mm -hmm. So I I think I think I can, you know, I did the 20 in like two forty nine. I think I think I can I think I can do three thirty. I think I hope. (laughs) What do you think you're most nervous about this being your first marathon? The crowds, the the amount of people. I mean, I'm I'm kind of used to it. Hood to Coast had 12,000 people, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I've run in like nine degree weather. Obviously, you know, you live in New York. You learn to run in really cold weather. Um, I'm hoping it's not freezing. Um, that's what I'm hoping. But, you know, if we see anything with New York, we kind of have lost, you know, my. we would just come in here and somebody said, New York has become a place that it's just summer and winter. We've we've lost the other two seasons somehow. Yes. So the biggest problem I have in any race, honestly, any race. When I just did Hood to Coast, I ran my I had the first I had the second leg and it was I think seven miles 
and my average was 623 per mile. That was as great as that sounds to say. It was one of the worst mistakes I ever made because I had two <laughs> more legs after that. And yeah. I was and I was like, why did I run that so fast? So you got a little too excited, right? I got a little too excited. So what I have to do is not get too excited for the marathon. I have to like literally pull myself back out of the gate. And I think that that's the hardest thing for me. And I think I'm not experienced enough. I've done a lot of races now, but I, I don't think I'm experienced enough. I kind of get caught in the hype and I'm really sure. competitive. Um, you did start running um, as you started acting, right? Mm-hmm. Wasn't it a role that you needed to lose some weight and kind of um, encourage you to start running? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the two things that we all chase in life is time and efficiency. And yeah. when I was... When I had to lose all this weight for this film, you know, I was playing this like crystal meth addict and I really wanted to like kind of get into this body of, you know, what somebody would look like and feel like, you know, in this in this emaciated kind of state. You know, uh, what it what it became was I had to like, you know, I had a diet where I was eating like, you know, not that I recommend this to anyone, but I was eating like, you know, eight, nine hundred calories a day and I had like no sugar. But then also I had to find a way. I was doing so much research. I was like, okay, what's the most efficient way to burn calories in the shortest amount of time? Because I was still really busy with working. And everything I looked at, it always somehow came back to running. And I would avoid that like the plague. I'd be like, no, maybe I could do the Stairmaster. You know, I was like, I didn't want <laughs> to run because I just, it just wasn't, I just didn't understand it. And then what happened is I started running and it helped me in mainly in acting like because I would be able to develop my character while I was running because like in the world that we're in right now we're so hooked up we're so like in the matrix with like all our phones and computers Mm -hmm. and social media and all that like this was the only time that you can actually detach you know so I was I I became like almost like addicted to it I was like even though I couldn't run more than a half a mile I would like go run and I just, it was like, holy, I'm alone. You know, I can't look at my phone. I can't whatever. So it, it started really benefiting my character development, like how I was how I was able to act, how I was becoming a better actor from running. Well, what, what types of things would you do as you were running to oh, better oh my your character God. development, as you said? You break down a scene, you know, in your head. You know, if you, if, you, if you just read a scene or you read a script, you're able to kind of process it because there's no distractions. So you're thinking about it. You're coming up with ideas. You're kind of thinking about like what, what I would like to look like, what I would like to say, what I, what I feel this guy would be like, what is his backstory, what are these things I can create that I was, as my world got busier and my life got, you know, bigger, I was having a much harder time finding. I mean, the only time I was really finding that was in the shower or, you know, uh, you know, if you go, you know, for lack of a better word, like sit on the toilet for a little while. And even then, and even then you find yourself on the phone all the time. So there's really, it's almost like escaping the phone. How can I escape the phone? And there was only two places you can really escape the phone and that's the shower and when you were running. Do you remember some breakthrough runs that you had? Yeah, for sure. I mean, whenever I, you know, uh, start developing a character for, you know, if you use the most recent show, like Luke Cage, for example, it was like, okay, this is a character who's based in Harlem. So it would all start with a playlist, a music playlist, you know, and I would use like these, you know, I'm really big into hip hop. I grew up on hip hop. So I would start Mm -hmm. with like specific artists from Harlem. 
you know, whether it be Big L or, you know, the the Diplomats, Cameron and, and you know, and all that. And then I'd put them on a playlist and I'd go running with that playlist to kind of start to get the character. So now that's one aspect. I used to run around the Rose Bowl a lot because uh, when I was shooting the last season of Suns, I kind of mm-hmm. lived close to that. So I would use that sure. as a run. It's a little repetitive. You kind of start to zone out a little. Um, so that's when I created a lot of stuff too. You've also like not just in terms of running for yourself, but you've gotten very active in the Staten Island community and started your own race series. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering how that idea came about and um, you know, what races have you put on and what are you hoping uh, the races accomplish? Yeah, so it all started with uh, you know, while I was running, while I was really figuring out running, I started doing this thing on Twitter. You know, Social media is a, a pretty incredible tool if you, if you use it the right way. And what I would do is I would put up these like, hashtag go get it life tweets i would like literally tweet a quote you know a famous quote an inspirational Mm -hmm. quote or i would create my own a lot of them were i create my own thing where you know some kind of motivational thing that i was really doing for me i didn't care if anybody favored or retweeted it i was really for me and then i'd hashtag go get it life and what i started to find is that i was getting an incredible response from the followers they would say to me Hey, can you can you please put one of those go get it life quotes out or a go get it life tweet because it really, you know, I need it today. And I'm thinking, wow, this is crazy. I was doing this for me and now other people are being, you know, affected by it. So what I did sure. is I created this website, Go Get It Life, you know, with my team and we we wanted it to just be like a blog where people can motivate each other. So, you know, whether it be a mother who dealt with, you know, some kind of loss or a mother who is, you know, raising, you know, a single mom raising three children could, you know, tell her story so others could hear it. Or if it was somebody dealing with addiction or, hey, if it was somebody who just had a really great recipe for food, it became this hub of like people really interacting. And we saw this tremendous growth. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Wouldn't it be great if we can get all these people even more inspired and do something that I love, which is, you know, put on a race and get them to come down and walk and run and really get, you know, people active in the borough. Uh, not just Staten Island. We did one in Brooklyn. Now now we're, you know, uh, specifically in Staten Island, but we did one in Brooklyn to start. And what it was was it became something else because I'm an ambassador for a lot of different charities. Um, you know, I'm an ambassador for the Humane Society, I'm an ambassador for the boot campaign, I'm an ambassador for uh, a charity called A Very Special Place, AVSP, you know, for uh, people dealing with developmental disabilities, you know, a lot of different things that I've always, you know, kind of gotten involved in. Um, there, I needed a hub to kind of where can I raise money and then uh, distribute to these charities, you know, a lot of things that are close to my heart. How can I kind of put this in one because I can't do an event for Humane Society and then do an event for Boot Campaign and then do an event for this and then do an event for that. It was nice that we can do this little one, you know, and and get people out running. So this be kind of became like a catch-all for for all my stuff that uh that I, you know, that's more important to me than anything I do. So when you put on the 5K, are you um, running it or are you too busy organizing it? Oh, no, I'm running. I'm okay. running. Yeah. It, I let everybody it, else organize. I run. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I know you run basically wherever you travel or mm-hmm. are on set and whatnot. Where is your uh, favorite place that you've ever run? Paris. 
Paris. Yeah. That, that, no hesitation. Why, no why hesitation. is that? I, I, I just think it's, you know, I just think that uh, when you're just looking at the, the landscape of a city, the architecture, the, the you know, the Champs-Elysees when you're like running in, and, and I'll go at like, you know, six in the morning, five in the morning when there's no tourists out there and you're hitting into those incredible landmarks and you're running in this city that has, it's so rich in history and it's so, I mean, you feel like you're in a video game in a way because you're running through these parks and you're running near these fountains and you're running next to these statues and the Louvre and you're running right up to the Louvre and you're like, you, you almost can't believe that you're you're doing this and there's very few people on the streets. There's the guys like hosing off the sidewalks. There's no mm-hmm. one there. And, you know, because I go so early and it's just it's almost like I think it's the closest I can come to magic ever. It's like almost magical in a way. And it's I just remember I almost I can visualize the songs I was listening to and what was, you know, like I remember like a specific Pearl Jam song hitting like while I was running. And it was just like the sun was kind of coming up and it's it's brilliant. I've never run in a more beautiful place. Um, I want to talk about moving you've moved back to new york city since uh the filming of luke cage when when you're on set you know in the throes of filming mm-hmm. when do you most often get your runs in and how do you balance it's really hard the, like you, intensity of of filming with with running yeah it's really hard you know with with la when i was in la it was a I hate to say it was a bit easier, but it was a bit easier. One, I'm pretty sure everyone in LA wakes up at 11 o'clock, so nobody's up early. So you can go running. <laughs> you know, if you go running at like 6 a.m., there's literally coyotes in the street. There's no one. There's no one <laughs> running. There's no one even out. Nobody gets up for work. There's none of that. So, so people are sauntering out of their house at like 11. Um, you know, so you'd have these mornings where it would be like 60 degrees. And people mm-hmm. are, people are wearing parkers and stuff, and you're out running, yeah, yeah. and it's <laughs> and it's uh, you can get some really beautiful runs in uh, in the morning. So before I'd go shoot, you know, most of the time with Suns it was different. I had to be on set at five thirty, four thirty in the morning because I had an hour and a half of tattoos and you know cutting the mohawk and all that. Sure. With Luke Cage, it's different. You know, we shoot our studios in Greenpoint, but we're you know in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, but we're usually on location in Harlem. So um, it depends on when I have to get picked up. So what I did recently was I put a, you know, I put a, a really, I got, I'm really fortunate and I was able to put a gym in the house that we're in. So I have a, you know, a life fitness treadmill or the dreadmill as I call it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and even if I have to go do strides, you know, in the morning, um, you know, I'll do that. But if not, I'm going to run when I come home. I'm going to run before I go, but I'm getting the run in no matter what, you know, I've come home from working, you know, and acting's funny, right? People will be like, Oh, I, I worked for 12 hours. You might've worked for 12 hours, but you actually, you actually only filmed for like 45 minutes, you know, uh, the yeah. rest of the time was setting up and doing this and doing that. So, um, I usually, no matter what, I'm going to get it in. If I come back home at night, uh, I'm going to, you know, if it's cold, I'm going to bundle up and I'm going to run it at night. And if not, I'm going to run it in the morning. And, and, you know, with the summer and the spring, that very short spring we have, it's, uh, it's a lot easier because then I, then I don't mind popping up at three, 4 AM and, uh, going for a run or doing it at night. Now, uh, with your character shades, had you been, uh, 
running in sunglasses to get used to the uh <laughs> you know i wish i did because it probably would have helped me and i wouldn't have walked into everything on the first two yeah. episodes um <laughs> man that was uh you, you would think that was like the littlest thing in the world and it was like one of the hardest things to get adjusted to um no you know what's so funny even when we just did our last race i saw a lot of people who run in hats and sunglasses i kind of don't understand mm-hmm. that i really don't i don't i don't get it i feel like I, I run with a headband just because I have to because I feel like I sweat like crazy uh, when I'm running and it gets in my eyes and it kind of gets all salty and stuff. I don't really understand how people run in sunglasses and hats. I think Shades would even probably not run in sunglasses. He'd run in like <laughs> – I think he'd run in like swimming goggles. They'd be a little more comfortable I think than uh, – Sure. Than they'd sunglasses. stay on a little better. They'd stay yeah. on a little better. Yeah. Yeah. Can't do it. New York City Marathon morning – I'm assuming you're going to stay at your place on Staten Island, obviously. What's yes. going to be your morning routine? I've been doing the same one forever, you know, that I started this training. Um, I get up. I stretch a little. I fill up a gallon of water. I have pour out these three glasses. One of them has uh, uh, apple cider vinegar and water. One has lemon and water. One has this uh, green chlorophyll uh, my, where I get my greens with the water. Um, and then I have a vega protein shake with some other greens in it and Mm -hmm. some fiber and i have a little of that and then i have a fruit bowl that has uh, apples uh, berries yogurt and almond butter and a little cinnamon and syrup and i have that an hour before i run to two hours before i run i feel absolutely fantastic i kind of like feel like i can jump through the wall um after i eat that um i don't know my start times i don't know anything yet once they i find that out i'll 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 figure it out. And and what are you going to celebrate with? Oh, pizza. I'm like a I'm a junkie. I'm a pizza junkie. I I'm I'm going to get a lot of pizza and I'm going to You live in the right place. Yeah, right, I live so. in the right place. <laughs> Back in October 2014, Thea Rossi also appeared on the back page of Runner's World in the I'm a Runner section. We've got a link to that story at runnersworld.com slash audio. And now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and online senior content editor Scott Douglas. Okay, so it's been a while since I've seen him. He was my roommate up in Boston for the Boston Marathon, made me some great coffee. Scott Douglas Skyping in from Maine. Really, no one else I'd really want to hear the insight from a big race other than Scott. So, Scott, thanks for coming and doing The Kick with us for the first time. Happy to be here. So let's just jump right in. Here's what people want to know first. What type of coffee beans are you bringing to the city for your hotel room? It's, well, since it's uh, a strong international field, always in the New York City Marathon, it'll be a nice Ethiopian coffee that I'll be bringing. That that sounds like a uh, smart choice. Is, yes. that, is that what you brought to Boston? Probably. Okay, it was... And, and, and... Uh, Ethiopians won the race, too, so it worked out well. You are the good luck charm with your choice of coffee beans. So, okay, so really, let's actually talk about the race. Let's start on the women's side. A lot of interesting storylines to kind of get to. What stands out to you when you're looking at this race that we're going to be covering this weekend? In terms of the likely winners, the returning champion, Mary Katani of Kenya, on paper would seem to be the favorite. She did not run in the Olympics, and so therefore is fresher than some of the people she'll be running with. But mm-hmm. over the summer, she ran 
some really fantastic shorter races. So she's the person to beat. They probably the her top can, uh, rival would be someone who did run the Olympics. That's Marie Dababa of Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. She was third in the Olympics. She won the world championship last year. And she's also been second at Boston. So she's very good at these races like New York where there's not a rabbit. They are you running more for place than time. The question with her would be, you know, how fresh is she? Uh, marathon race day will be 11 weeks since the mar- since the Olympic marathon, and that could be that's a quick turnaround time. And Katani, not only is she a favorite, she's going for her third ever. That would put her in some elite company, right? She's going for her third straight, and the last woman to do that was Greta Weitz, who won nine total races and and us. Uh, some of that being a, a consecutive year streak. So that's going back some 30 years since a woman has run one three times in a row. And what about on the American side? Molly Huddle is the big name. What can we expect from her in her first marathon ever? Uh, so Molly Huddle is a racer more than a time trialer, and that is the sort of person who does best at the New York City Marathon. She, of course, has run some very, very fast times, including the American record for 10,000 meters at the Olympics in August. But that came by virtue of racing to that time rather than setting out to run a fast time from the start. Uh, she has you know, years and years of experience of racing against the very best runners in the world. So I don't think that she'll be intimidated by the women who are you know, much faster than her at the marathon, given that she's never run one. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's had success in New York, even at the half marathon distance, right. and she's, she's familiar the last, with the city. Yeah, she's won the last two New York City halves, uh, which they have some opening miles in Central Park. She's also won the um, the women only 10K that the New York Roadrunners put on in June in Central Park. So she's used to racing in Central Park where the last miles are. She it, It'd be hard to see her not finish as the top American and in her debut. Okay, so let's move over to the men's side now. What's playing out for the elite side for the guys? As with the women's race, the defending champion is back. That's Stanley Biwat of Kenya. Um, and on paper, he would seem to be the favorite. So he won New York last year, then in April in London, became one of only eight men in history to break 204 for the marathon. And he ran a really, really great half marathon in June. He also, though, uh, dropped out of the Olympic marathon in August. Mm-hmm. And while you might think, oh, good, well, that, that leaves him a little fresher for New York, he dropped out at about the 30, just a little bit after the 35-kilometer mark. So with you know just a bit of a, over four miles to go. His top challenger uh, should be Elisa Decisa of Ethiopia, uh, fans might know his name because he has twice won the Boston Marathon. He was third in New York last year and second the year before. So he's a guy who you know knows how to run well on these challenging courses where you're running for place rather than time. And, and just like with the women on the American side, um, we we have some big names and some people you know looking to do some damage in the marathon. Right. So as on the women's side, you know, none of the U.S. Olympic marathoners are in the race. Mm-hmm. So that ha- that means that Dathan Ritzenhine is sort of the big name among the American men. Uh, he 
you know, of course, was an Olympic marathoner in 2008 and was ninth in the Olympic marathon. That leads Dathan Rissenheim as the big American name. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what he does because he he ran really, really well at Boston in 2015. You know, people might remember him actually leading the the pack coming off of Heartbreak Hill, and he was the top American at Boston in 2015. Then he dropped out of the Olympic marathon trials in February. Um, and then from that, rebounded to have a great summer of racing at shorter distances, including his really, really big tune-up in September. He ran a 1.00.12 half marathon just off of his lifetime best and more significantly, just behind double Olympic champion Mo Farah. So he's really, really fit. The question with Dathan is always... Will he have muscle cramps over the last 10K? He's, he's been susceptible to this throughout his career, and um, it'll be interesting to see if he can hold up. If he can, and if it's a more of a tactical race rather than a you know 206 pace race, which it almost never is in New York, mm-hmm. if it's a slower tactical race, I think that Dathan could be in there fighting for a top three spot. He's just so tough, and he never gives up. Right. And, you know, as I mentioned at the top, you'll be there covering the race. Um, If you want to watch it, it's on ESPN2. If you're in the New York City area, WABC TV Channel 7 will have the race as well. But you should also follow us. You're going to be live tweeting the event. Right. 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 At RW Advanced on Twitter. So um, the New York City Marathon, it's, you know, a big race, 50,000 people. A lot of celebrities come out and do it. What for people watching, and maybe they've never done the New York City Marathon, or they want to do it someday. It's a bucket list race. What what makes it special in your eyes, Scott? I would say you know there's there's just something about I did the largest marathon in the world, and there are, I ran a marathon with fifty thousand <laughs> yeah. people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing. Um, I would say certainly just the the tour of all five boroughs of New York, and the fact that you're doing it at times like by crossing these bridges with these just amazing views mm-hmm. would be another thing. The the crowd support, the just the energy level the entire way would be, you know, something that, you know, for people who are used to doing their long runs at seven AM <laughs> on a quiet country road, yeah. you know, it's sort of a once in a lifetime thing. There's um, you know, you're sort of the centerpiece of one of the greatest cities mm-hmm in the world. If you had like one bit of advice for somebody who maybe maybe they're trying to have a good race in New York or um, they're doing it for the first time, what what's the one tip you think people should keep in mind with it? Is well, it is it managing those crowds? Yeah, exactly. So what makes it so appealing is also one of its challenges and that's just the the sort of the manic energy that's going to be surrounding you the whole time. And so more so than than even a typical marathon, you know, be patient, be patient, be patient, um, get to 20 miles with something in reserve and then, you know, and then draw on the, the, all the energy and all the excitement to then, you know, to really make use of your fitness over the last 10 K. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, sadly I won't be in the city on Sunday. Um, I'll be working from Pennsylvania. Will you send it to me in Pennsylvania? I will make you a coffee and send it to you. Awesome. Hopefully we have a way to keep it warm. Again, Scott, thanks for calling in, and uh, we'll have you back on the kick when we need more elite coverage and just when anything is going on in the world of running. Thank you. Great. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's show. 
please take a minute to give us a rating and a review. And thank you if you've already done so. It really helps us make the show better. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. Next week, my conversation with the two winners of our December cover search. They are remarkable, inspiring people, and I'm looking forward to introducing them to you. And so I was starting to uh, adjust my behavior to create this better outcome. And it was all real vague in general. It wasn't about becoming 200 pounds lighter and becoming an ultra marathoner back then. It was just about me looking better in a suit. You know, when you're a fat guy and you tuck in your shirt, it's kind of like admitting that you're fat. Like it's a big deal. So in 2011 is when I just started moving. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.